New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The wisdom traditions have been with us for millennia. The mystery schools of the Egyptians, the Druids, the Gnostics, and the classical Greeks are all examples of this important source of knowledge. In old Hawaii, where the flow of primal energies created unparalleled natural beauty, one of the world's most highly advanced spiritual cultures developed. These Polynesian metaphysical insights still remain largely unknown in the West. The holders of this ancient wisdom tradition, the kahuna, who could be male or female, serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Dr. Hank Wesselman. Hank Wesselman is a paleoanthropologist and shamanic teacher who has worked with noted anthropologists in Ethiopia, investigating the mystery of human origins in the Great Rift Valley. He teaches at internationally known centers such as the Esalen Institute and the Omega Institute and lives in Hawaii. In addition to his scientific publications, his seven books on shamanism include the Spirit Walker Trilogy, Awakening to the Spirit World with Sandra Ingerman, and The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. Join us for the next hour as we explore the indigenous wisdom of Hawaiian shamanism with our guest, Dr. Hank Wesselman. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Hank, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here with you. Yes, well, it's good to have you here. So I'd like to, to begin talking about your origins. And you were actually born in New York City. I was. I was born on the upper New York's uh, Upper East Side. My father was an attorney. My mother was a homemaker, and I spent the first, really, 13, 14 years of my life there. And then because I was doing badly in school, my father decided to park me in a boarding school in New England for the next four years. And once I survived that, I moved west. And once I moved west, I never looked back. Yeah. So what was that What was that school you went to? That Was it uh, Andover, it, or what was it? It was called the Hotchkiss School. The Hotchkiss School. And it's still called the Hotchkiss School. Uh-huh. It was a preparatory school for Yale. And although I, uh, I, I didn't do well with the, um, the control of, of the school itself, but I learned my self-discipline there, and I learned how to study. So when I got to college, college was a snap. Yeah. Your father was a fencer. He was. In fact, he, the Olympics, 1936 Olympics. Yeah, well, he was at Harvard. He, he joined the fencing team, and he very rapidly advanced to become an East Coast champion which means that in 1936, he was a member of the American Olympic fencing team at Berlin when Hitler was the host. 
and Jesse Owens beat the Aryan race. Yes. That must have been really something. Yeah, I'm sure it was, yeah. Mm. And your mother, she was from Cleveland, I believe. What? She was from Cleveland. Her, She was from the Scholes family. And her father, Justin G. Scholes, started the Ohio Chemical Company. So she came from a long line of scientists and inventors. In fact, her grandfather, Christopher Scholes, invented the typewriter and sold it to Remington for a million dollars. Wow. That was worth a lot of money. That was a lot of money then. In those days, yeah. Yes, for sure. And she was known as Sherry, I think, right? She was known as Sherry Scholes. And then when she divorced my father and moved to California, she became an artist, changed her name to Servira, and had a series of interesting relationships with with interesting men, among whom was Brett Weston, the photographer and son of the American master Edward Weston. So I had a very interesting adolescence. And, and both both your parents uh, were from rural royalty, European royalty. Actually, they both had origins in ro- European European royalty, right? Well, they were ruling families. I wouldn't know if they were royalty the per se. Families, huh? um, all four of my grandparents' lineages stem from the ruling families of Europe and Britain, and this was one of the things that brought me and this Hawaiian elder together because he also came from a long lineage of chiefs. So when you went west. Uh, You went to California, yes? Well, I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, where I got a degree in zoology. And then I went in the Peace Corps, and I lived with people of the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer. And it was there that I really became interested in indigenous spiritual traditions. You know, I lived very close to a traditional African babalawo, which means the father of wisdom or the father of the cult. He was a shaman. And he was the one who steered me towards rituals and ceremonies that were going on in my town on an ongoing basis throughout the year. You know, having grown up in New York, I was not prepared for these experiences. You know, I would find myself the only white person among tens of thousands of Africans who are inviting the Orisha, the spirits, to come and possess them and yes. and bless the, the harvest or the planting, whatever. Yes. So that was kind of your... Your introduction to shamanism in some ways. Not really. No? I saw shamans uh, do what they do, and I met shamans and talked to them. In those days, I really worshipped solely at the altar of science. And when I came back to the United States, I went back into grad school, got a master's in zoology, and then migrated further west to Berkeley, where I got my Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of California. Yes. So it's, it's quite a journey there. Uh so you got your your doctorate in anthropology at Berkeley in 1982, um, and your dissertation was based on work into your work in southwestern Ethiopia. Yes, I fell into alignment with a professor who was in search of answers to the mystery of human origins. Is a paleontologist, a paleontologist anthropologist combo equals paleoanthropology. Yes. So I found myself as a graduate student rubbing elbows with people like Lewis and Mary Leakey and their son Richard and his wife Meve. My tentmate for two years was Don Johansson, the guy who would find Lucy in nineteen seventy four. And so I was rubbing elbows with the greats, and I was spending my days out in these arid landscapes with a crew of Africans, most of whom didn't speak a word of English. And I'd be out for three three months at a time, you know. It's one thing to go camping over Labor Day weekend, but, you know, <laughs> when you're out in the desert for three months, you know, you begin—that's where I really began to have visions. 
although I had no idea what they were at that time. I thought they were dreams, but they would happen often in the middle of the day when I was very much awake. And I was aware that something was up, but you know, in those days, you know, this wasn't the sort of thing you talk to your scientific colleagues about. Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Amazing. Uh, But I've been doing this work for, oh, the best part of 40 years, and my specialty work, I go to sites where major discoveries have been made, and I extract data from the site in the form of microvertebrate fossils which I can use to reconstruct the paleo environments of the sites at the time they were laid down. And as some of your listeners are aware, there was an extraordinary find made in Ethiopia in the 1990s, half of a skeleton, which is four and a half million years old, uh, called Artipithecus ramidus by science. This creature is so primitive, it's literally half something like an ape and half something like a human which means that it could very well be the famous missing link that Charles Darwin predicted we would eventually find. And I was in the field. I was a primary investigator on the site. I was one of the excavators of that skull, for example, that was on the cover of National Geographic in July in 2010. So this is really the discovery of the century. So for somebody like me to write a book like Spirit Walker, which came out now 15, 16 years ago, is unusual to say the least. Because as you know, having read that book years ago, that was a book about how I started to go crazy in Hawaii. I began to have these spontaneous visions while living on our small farm in Honano in South Kona. And at that time, I I started to have these experiences, usually around 4 o'clock in the morning, where my physical body would become completely paralyzed, and I'd find my conscious awareness literally re-geographied into the mind and body of another man. It was like spirit possession, but I was the one who was doing the possessing. I would find myself merged with another man in another slice of time. And to make things really sticky, I could listen to this man's thoughts, I could feel his emotions, I could tap into his memories. And I learned a great deal about him in that first episode I learned that he's the descendant of of a migration that came to the western coast of North America from the Hawaiian Islands, roughly 250 generations after the collapse of Western civilization. That translates out to roughly 5,000 years. That's pretty sticky stuff, you know, for a scientist to start having these experiences. And so I was wandering around in a kind of shell shock for the four years that I lived there at that time because... This started to develop into an ongoing continuum. This is a small farm back up in the hills. In the hills on in Kona. Yes. And so I would have these episodes, and each one seemed to follow the last one roughly in sequence. In the first one, this man was leaving on a quest of geographic investigation into the interior of the lost continent of America. Because when these migration, when this migration from the islands comes to the west coast, there are no cities, there are no cars, no freeways, and the landscape looks more like the Amazon or Costa Rica than California of today, bearing out greenhouse warming's worst-case scenario. So um, I began to take notes. I began to take notes on all of these episodes, and while I was teaching as a visiting professor at the University of California at San Diego in 8990, I began to write all this material up as, uh, I don't know what, as a, as a book, and eventually it was published as Spirit Walker. 
So when you said 5,000 years, is that 5,000 years in the future or in the past? In the future. In the future. Yeah, that makes it pretty strange, doesn't it? I would discover through my relationship with this man, when he began to have the experiences in reverse and find himself dreaming that he was in the body of a man who lived in the Hawaiian Islands in the past, it was his perception that I was most likely his ancestor. Well, I had never considered that this man might be one of my descendants. So if this was an ancestor-descendant relationship, it began to shed light on the causality of why this experience was actually happening. It was really this experience that led me toward the mystical tradition of the Hawaiian kahunas, because as you know, they had a very interesting perception of the way in which the human soul is put together. And if I've got this right, and I believe I do, this man, Nainoa, who lives in the future, and I are both manifestations, you could say embodiments, of the same higher self, the same oversoul, the same immortal spiritual aspect. So <clears throat> the question was, why? Why, Lord? Why was this happening to me? And I'm still not certain about this. Um, but I did report as accurately as I could these experiences in the Spirit Walker trilogy. It eventually came out from Bantam Books in New York uh, and was later published in 13 languages. I mean, that was quite a surprise. It's a bestseller in Norway, and there are not that many people in Norway. Yes. So to be on the bestseller list in Norway, I guess that was a kind of honor. Um, so um, the three books, yeah, they were... The first one was Spirit Walker, the second was Medicine Maker, and the third book in the trilogy was named Vision Seeker. A very interesting story. I'm speaking with Hank Wesselman. He's the author of The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. is Hank Wesselman. He's the author of The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from Hawaiian Shaman. So here you were in Hawaii, big island of Hawaii, and at some point you decided to move back to California. I was offered a position at the University of California at San Diego as a visiting professor for a year. And so I moved my family back and I began to teach upper division classes in human evolution and I created a class in indigenous mysticism, which became a bestseller instantly. When I moved north to Sacramento in 1991, I started to teach at three different colleges, uh, American River College, 
Sierra College and Sacramento State University. And I continued to refine this class. It later became known as Magic, Witchcraft, and Religion. <laughs> and um, it was a very, very popular class because what I would do is I would turn people inside out in the first two weeks. I would demystify organized religion. And, of course, all the fundamentalists would flee and drop the class so they could get their money back. And then I would fill people with interesting esoteric knowledge derived from my cross-cultural perspective of traditional people. I've lived a great deal of my life with tribal people in Africa. And then in the last two weeks, I'd turn them right side back in again. And they would experience the class as a kind of an initiation. So this was a very gratifying experience, and I enjoyed it greatly um, over the time that I was there. But in 1996, my family and I had been gone from the islands for seven years, and so we decided to spend Christmas in Hawaii. And I was invited during that time to speak at an institute, which at that time was located in a newly built Frank Lloyd Wright house up in Waimea on the oh, Big the Island. The New Millennium Institute, I believe. The yes. New Millennium Institute. And, you know, this is an interesting experience because before I wrote a book, nobody cared what I had to say. But once you write a book, everybody's very interested yes. in what you have to say. It's, <laughs> it's a strange phenomenon. It is. Yeah. But Spirit Walker had been out for about a year. And so my wife, Jill, and I showed up at the New Millennium Institute and got a tour of this new house. And there were about 50 people who came to hear what I had to say. And on that day, I gave a rather academic talk about the transformational community. That's us. That's your listenership, my readership. We're the ones who are going to create the new mythos. And I'm, this is something that's riveting to me as a social anthropologist. But just before I was, I was going to give my talk, the door opened and in walked this big Hawaiian man. He had a great big beard down his chest, a big long white ponytail down his back. He had this magnificent carved walking stick. He had a flashy aloha shirt. He was wearing two flower lays. This was the elder Hale Makua. Now, I'd heard about this guy for years, um, mainly because he had an exceptional genealogy. On his mother's side, he was descended from High Chief King Kamehameha, and on his father's side, he was descended from High Chief Keowa, whose Kamehameha sacrificed to sanctify his heo, from which he launched his conquest of the Hawaiian Islands to become the king. Kamui. So, because of his genealogy, everybody in Polynesia knew who this guy was. I mean, he was in some ways like the Dalai Lama of Polynesia. You know, when he got off the plane in Tahiti or Rayatia or Rarotonga, he would be greeted at the airport by crowds who wanted to see him, who wanted to touch him, who wanted to take him home and feed him and talk to him. Yes. This was a man who sat on stage with the Dalai Lama in the United Nations in New York. He was one of the indigenous peacekeepers. Um, he visited with the American uh, Indian nations, the Native American nations here in North America. He went all the way to South Africa as part of that last big conference in, in South Africa, care of the Ford Foundation, who found him rather late in the game. So I was, you know, initially a little bit concerned because having written Spirit Walker, there is some kahuna wisdom some kahuna knowledge in Spirit Walker. And I knew when I was publishing this that, you know, as indigenous people, they have mixed feelings about outsiders trespassing into their spiritual traditions. You were a howly. Uh, I was a howly, and I still am. Yes. <laughs> 
So, you know, I knew that sooner or later, somebody from the Kahuna families would come in to look me over. So on this particular day, here comes Hale Makua, and he's got four or five more Hawaiian men with him, all of them with beards and ponytails. And so I realized that the time had come. Not only that, this wasn't just any kahuna had come to lick me over. This was the big kahuna. Yes. So I was nervous, and I, I decided it would be good to breathe a short prayer, a pule, before I gave my talk. And this did not escape the notice of the elder. I gave my talk, and I watched him tracking me like a hunter, you know, smiling when I would talk about something known to him, looking thoughtful when I came up with something new to challenge my listeners. I was talking about the beliefs, values, and trends of the transformational community. And so at the end of my talk, I got this kind of pulling sensation in my soul. It, it, it was like, you know, I was getting this feeling that there was something that he wanted to say, that he'd come specifically to look me over, but there was something he wanted to say. I didn't know what the protocol was, and protocol for indigenous people is everything. So I looked at him and I said, Elder Makua, I don't know what the correct protocol is, but I'm getting this feeling that you would like to say something. Would it be correct for me to ask you to speak? Well, this is a man who traveled with many generations of his ancestors in uh, constant attendance upon him as his advisors. So I watched him sort of blank out momentarily and check in with his advisors. And when he reemerged, he looked at me across the room and said, a friend of mine sent me your book, Spirit Walker, and I read it. There was then this pregnant silence. Yes. <laughs> you know, this was like high noon in Polynesia. This was the moment of truth. Everybody was waiting to see what he would do. He said, I read it again just to make sure I got it right. And then I went down to the beach, and I took your book, and I put it down on the sand, and I called in the ancestors, and we had a talk about you. Silence again. You know, everybody's just on pins and needles. He said, the ancestors asked me what your name is, so I told them that your name is Wesselman, Hank Wesselman. And he smiled and he said, ancestors told me I wasn't pronouncing your name right. They said that your name is really Wesselman, that you are a vessel like the canoe. And he's watching me to see if I'm getting it yet. And I'd been expecting myself to be condemned. You know, I expected him to say, look, you're not Hawaiian. Stop writing about us. And Makua was very clairvoyant, and he's reading me like a book as this is going through my mind. And he said, don't worry, we Hawaiians don't write. We talk, and we share what we find in our hearts with each other. But in your culture, it's the tradition to write. So I've been instructed to say to you by the ancestors in front of these people here that everything you wrote in your book, Spirit Walker, is true. And we Hawaiians need to support you. You're making our job easy. Well... You know, this was quite a shocker. I mean, there were people who were there who were actually weeping with the emotion of the moment. At the end of this gathering, Makua approached me and he said, we should have a meeting before you leave the island. Now, when the big kohana says you're going to have a meeting, our meeting took place on the last day of the year in 1996, right on the edge of the crater in Volcano National Park, Kilauea Crater. And on that day, he took my wife to the women's place of power, where the women make medicine, and made prayers for her there. Then he took me to the men's place of power, where he called in his ancestors. 
And it was then that I realized that Makua was a shaman because as he began to chant, you know, looking at this vast crater that was spread out below us, as he began to chant, all of these names began to roll off his tongue, these Polynesian names. And I watched him physically transform in front of me. He was actually morphing as each um, ancestor used the bridge that he was creating with his mind and his body into the spirit world so that they could step into our world and witness what was about to transpire. I realized then he was a shaman. Now, in talking about shamans, there's a lot of confusion about the kind of work that medicine people do and the kind of work that shamans do. Shamans are individuals who have the ability to go into trance very easily, and they often discover they can do this in childhood. When they go into trance, they re-geography their conscious awareness into an alternate reality that the indigenous people call the spirit world. We could call it anything we like. The Australians call it the dream time. Others call it the other world. Some people just simply call it the sacred. But the first thing they discover when they move into this alternate reality is that this world is inhabited. It's inhabited by what they call spirits. I think of them more as as, uh, transpersonal forces. But these spirits are the spirits of elementals, the spirits of nature, the spirits of animals and plants and trees, uh, the spirits of ancestors, the spirits of the dead, the higher organizing intelligences that human beings tend to anthropomorphize as winged superhumans called angels. You know, they are the ones who are in charge of this world, and they're the ones who are our guardians and our teachers. And this is the world in which the shaman works. They do their main work there. Whereas medicine people, it's been my experience of medicine people at conferences and in my in my checkered career as an anthropologist, it's my, been my experience that medicine people tend to fulfill social roles more like those of priests in the sense that they serve as ceremonial leaders, ritual leaders, which is very important work because they hold the equilibrium, both the metaphysical and physical equilibrium of their communities and their capable hands. But medicine people tend to do their main work in this world, in this world here. And many of them are accomplished healers with great knowledge of the healing arts, the medicinal plants, and so forth and so on. But again, they do their main work here, whereas the shaman does their main work in the world of things hidden. I want to go back for a moment before you actually met with... Uh, Makua. Makua, with Holly Makua. Um, you were having trouble sleeping the night before. You were nervous about the, a little nervous about the being together. And you, you left the house and you, you uh, took a journey, a night journey. And, and talk about that. That was a very fascinating story. Do you remember which night journey it was? Well, it was you went, you went, you went and walked to the edge of the crater and you had to go through all. That's right. To, you had to go through this incredible, uh, I mean, it's at night and, and you were traversing this, this area, which was, beyond the warning area of the park service, don't go beyond this area, it's dangerous. And there you were. Well, you know, my wife and I, including my entire family, really, my children as well, we've always had a very guarded but very formal, respectful relationship with Peli, the spirit who lives inside the great mountain Mauna Loa. And so 
During the time we lived in Hawaii in the 1980s, we would make offerings of flowers from the garden. And usually it would be our children who would make the offerings when we would go to the crater. So in 1996, we were on the mountain again for the first time in seven years. And I was nervous because, you know, this this uh, spirit is a formidable mountain spirit, the yes. kind of spirit they would call an apu in South America. And so... Uh, at midnight, the night before we met with Makua at his office at the crater. We're going to have to, I'm going to have to interrupt you. We're going to have to break for a moment. We'll come back to the story when we return. Uh, I'm speaking with Hank Wesselman, author of The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. And if you'd like more information about his work, you can go to the website. And the website is sharedwisdom.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm speaking with Hank Wesselman, and he's the author of The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. And Hank, we were talking about the night trek that you took uh, to the edge of Pele. So let's continue with that story. Well, you know, I've always had this very respectful relationship with this spirit because my home is on the flank of the largest active volcano in the world. And so unless you have a good relationship with a volcano goddess, you know what she might do. So I felt compelled to go out there in the middle of the night. It was midnight. And so I, I approached the place where you park the cars and walked alone across the lava flats to approach that vast crater called Halimamau, where is located her traditional home. And it was really quite an extraordinary evening because that experience included a kind of direct encounter with this transpersonal force. She didn't appear to me in the way most people would think, as a woman wearing a white dress or an old crone. I tend to perceive these transpersonal beings as lights, as light beings, and that's the way she came. And I felt a wonderful voice come into my soul. It wasn't an audible voice, it was more of a soul perception in which she acknowledged who I was and, and what I was doing. And it seemed to be just the thing that was required before spending the day with a, with a kohuna. And this so, is a bluish light. As I recall, it was kind of a pinkish light. Pinkish light, I see. Yeah, it was kind of a pinkish light. That was the light that she tends to emanate, at least when I see her. So I got very little sleep that night. And when Makua and I had our meeting the next day at the crater, uh, I was, you know, a little bit wacky. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't my, my normal sense, but I was sort of coming and going into the dream. And we had this wonderful talk, he and I and my wife, at his office, which is a picnic shelter, which is put up by the park service, you know, just corrugated iron roof, benches, picnic tables, trash can, portable lua around the corner. He sat down and said, the office is now open. How can I be of service to you? Um, we got to know each other that day. It was the beginning of a most extraordinary friendship. 
And at the end of the afternoon, he gave us a gift. He gave us a very simply carved Hawaiian wooden bowl. And when he gave us the bowl, he said, this is your bowl of light. He said, when each one of us comes into the world, we come in with a gift from our higher self. And the word for this in Hawaiian is aumakua, which translates as utterly trustworthy ancestral spirit. I really like that. He said, before we come into life, our oversoul, our higher self, divides itself, and it sends in a seed of its light, a bowl of light, which we receive when we draw our first breath, when we emerge from our mother's body. This is what the Hawaiians call the ha, H-A, the ha of aloha. Alo means face to face, and ha is the divine breath of night, of life. He said, when you receive that bowl of light, that light nourishes you and sustains you throughout your entire life. Uh, but as we grow in experience and wonder, things happen. Every time we step into the negative polarity, every time we take something that doesn't belong to us or we experience success at the, exper at the expense of someone else's failure, or every time we injure someone with our words or our thoughts or our actions, it's like you put a stone in your bowl and some of your light goes out. He said, life is long, and slowly but surely, your bowl of light begins to fill up with stones. Hopefully, we find out what we're doing before it's too late. And he said, you know what you do then? And of course, Jill and I are hanging on every word, and we said, what? And he said, you dump it out. And he turned the bowl over with a big laugh, you know, he said, but when you do that, when you clear your bowl and you release all the intrusions and grudges and wounds that you've been carrying with you all of your life, he said, you begin to lead your life differently. It's at that point that you become a spiritual warrior. Now, he used the word warrior with deliberation because he was a military warrior for much of his life. He joined the Marines as soon as he could, and he was in five major wars. The first was Beirut, and then the last one was Vietnam, where he did 90 patrols behind enemy lines. He was a gunnery sergeant. Gunnery sergeant. And he did point reconnaissance. He did. Which was behind the lines. Behind the lines. This was a man who was six, probably six foot four or five, and he would become invisible. <laughs> You know, in his last tour, he was shot up very, very badly through his legs and feet, and he was in a VA hospital for five years. Yeah, it was a remarkable story. Yeah, and I, you know, my wife, who's a physical therapist, said, God, Michael, how did you get through that? And he said, well, I had my last room. Um, I had my own room for the last two years. Uh, but he said the deciding factor was really my ancestors. They came to visit me every day, sometimes twice. And when I left the hospital on my own legs after five years, I was clean. I was clear of all my anger, my fear, my wounds. Everything was gone. And it was then that I became a spiritual warrior instead of a military warrior. Now, he said the path the spiritual warrior walks on is a very narrow path, and it's constrained by three sacred directives. In Hawaiian, they'd be called kapus, K-A-P-U, kapu. It's a sacred, it's directive. He said, the first directive is this. You must love all that you see with humility. And I'm thinking, whoa, easy one first. You know, and of course, because of his clairvoyance, he picked this up immediately and he laughed. And he said, I worked on that one for seven years. Love all that you see with humility. 
The second kapu is to live all that you feel with reverence. And in this sense, reverence refers to respect, an active respect. For the indigenous person, Makua was fond of observing, the foundation stone of indigenous mind is respect, is reverence. So I remember asking him one day, what's the foundation stone for Western mind? And he grinned at me and he said, well, Western mind and colonial mind is the same mind. The foundation stone for Western mind is dominion, domination, very different approach to life. So when you live your life with respect, uh, it's what Joseph Campbell meant when he said, follow your bliss and you can't go wrong. You know, and it's the way in which indigenous people live traditionally. The third kapu, know all that you possess with discipline. Know what you possess. And this includes what possesses you with discipline. This is where we find our self-discipline. And as all of you who are listening know, self-discipline is absolutely essential when you walk the spiritual path. Without it, you cannot achieve the same thing is true of aloha. If you want to make connection with spirit, you cannot do it from the negative polarity. You have to come from a place of aloha if you want to connect with your higher self or with whatever you conceive of as God or with the angelic forces. You have to come from that place of love. You can't come from the negative polarity. So let's, let's this, talk, I'd like to go a little deeper with that, the negative polarity, because I think in this culture where we're surrounded by media telling us what's wrong with the world all the time, that that many of us, we can get into that, that acculturation, literally, of, of the negative polarity. Yes, and, you know, one of the things that he talked about uh, often were the life roles that each one of us assumes as we live our life, through which we experience life. And he talked about something which he uh, moved into the Western perspective, something from the deep wisdom of the Kohona mystics of Polynesia, and he expressed it in the Western way in this way. He said there are really seven major life roles, the server, the artisan, the warrior, the scholar, the sage, the priest, the priestess, and the chief, the king or the queen. Now, some of your listeners may be aware of the fact that this also hinges very interestingly with the Michael material from the Michael Oversoul, which has come into into relationship with many uh, human beings at this time as a teacher. And Makua had heard what this being, the Michael Oversoul, had had to say and was very impressed by this. Each one of these roles has a negative and a positive polarity. For example, the warrior, our politicians, our soldiers, our corporate businessmen and women, they're warriors. The positive polarity of the warrior is persuasion. The negative polarity is coercion. Now, the interesting thing about looking at a place like the Middle East today, the Middle East is in conflict because of a failure of the politicians. They're, they were not successful in the job that they're supposed to do. Their job is persuasion. So we went into the negative polarity and started to use force, the military. The negative polarity, it's very, very difficult to achieve a successful outcome in the negative polarity. You have to go back into the positive polarity to get a successful outcome in the end. <coughs> so these life roles, um, for example, the positive polarity of the server 
all those great people who were in service to us in banks and restaurants and cab drivers and and uh, airline people and so forth. The positive polarity is service. They've come to be of service. What would the negative polarity be? Bondage, slavery. We have a new kind of slavery in the world today, economic slavery, where people strive in jobs that they don't like and they spend a lifetime in endless, joyless striving. That would be the negative polarity of the server. For the sage, the positive polarity is expression. Joseph Campbell, who we mentioned, is a sage. The, ne the negative polarity is oration, where the speaker talks and talks and talks and talks and just to hear themselves talk. You could think of the filibuster in, in, uh, in politics as a form of you the know, negative what, polarity. C-SPAN any day, yeah. you, you yeah. hear that. For the priest, the priestess, the positive polarity is compassion. The negative polarity is zeal. Mm -hmm. Think Zealot. about Zealot. The, the zealots. I mean, uh, virtually most of the problems in the world right now are caused by religious zealots. Um, and for, of course, the chief. When the chief sits in the chair, their relationship to the servant is a very strong one because the authentically initiated chief is in service to their people. They're in service to all their people, not just their cronies and their political allies and the chiefly class or the priests. They're in service to everyone, even the lowliest street sweeper or dung carrier and their families. I saw this in Africa, you know, where the chief didn't remain chiefs for long if they weren't in service to their people. The positive polarity of the chief is mastery, self-mastery especially. The negative polarity is tyranny. Do it my way. And we've all had a good taste of that recently. Sure. So, Makua was very uh, adamant about the fact that we live our lives in these lifeways, and each one of us has a primary role. My primary role in life is scholar. You know, I've always had my nose in books. I'm always seeking knowledge, trying to put things together, trying to synthesize. The negative polarity for the scholar, interestingly, is theory is theory. Think about that one. Think about all those contentious turf wars in academia that develop around competing theories. Those theories ideally take you toward knowledge, but often we miss the chance. We're listening to Hank Wesselman, and he's the author of The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website sharedwisdom.com. At sharedwisdom.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
my guest is Hank Wesselman. The book is The Bowl of Light, and we're exploring ancestral wisdom from a Hawaiian shaman, Holly Makua. And Hank, we wanted to talk, we wanted to cover one of the things, one of the uh, pieces that you did in the seven life roles. Life roles, artisan. So let's make sure we cover artisan. Before the artisan. The artisan, of course, is the artist. And the positive polarity for the artisan is creation, the creation of images of power and beauty. The negative polarity is deception, artifice, where an artist doesn't have any particular talent themselves, but they're very good at imitating other people who do have talent. This would be the negative polarity of the artist. And of course, when the artist goes into the negative polarity, they go into their fears. And, uh, you know, look what happened to poor Vincent van Gogh. I mean, he's a beautiful example of that, about how his fears and his demons eventually destroyed him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things we want to cover uh, is the ancestral great wisdom, or ancestral grand plan, I should say. Uh, so let's talk about that. And this was something that was, was, was shared with you and your wife, Jill, by Makua in the last week of his life. It was. We talked about pieces of the plan before, but he really put it together while we were having margaritas at a restaurant. He was very fond of margaritas. Um, the plan, in his words, the plan represents a united effort by the planetary collective spiritual hierarchy. He thought of the planetary hierarchy as a step-by-step ascent into greater and greater levels of awareness. The plan was originally initiated by and is now supported by the ancestors, and it was designed to expand the consciousness of our children, our society, as well as humanity as a whole. And we could talk about two initial goals of this plan. The first is the expansion of each individual's horizons of thought, as well as the increasing and strengthening of our spirituality, our self-assurance, and our knowledge at all levels. This he saw as being necessary in order to clear up certain areas of doubt, and these doubts are formidable adversaries for all of us because they keep us in confusion and thus create separation. Makoa was fond of proclaiming, if you doubt, you're out, and he would always laugh when he said it. If you doubt, you're out. That's great. Yeah. That's good, huh? Yeah, it's good. The second goal of the plan is to more closely link all of our spiritual elders with each other, with our family members, with our communities, and with the workers in the world. It's about creating connection rather than separation. And to this end, from his perspective, all of our elders, both indigenous and Western, must bring their personal groups of family members, students, spiritual aspirants, and colleagues into connection with each other. This needs to be done objectively, subjectively, intuitively, and eventually he felt it would take place telepathically. Now, the levels of the plan itself, he saw three basic divisions of the plan, political, religious, and scientific. Now, in talking about political, the objective of the work at this level is to develop international links throughout the world through the vehicle of consciousness itself. The foundation for these links from Akua's perspective had to be based in compassion, in aloha. 
This consciousness alone would create a foundation and then embody a spirit of international interdependence and interrelation based on that aloha. He thought that isolation, separateness, exclusiveness, and the cultivation of nationalism were formidable barriers, and they simply had to go. Likewise, all of our nationalist egoisms, colored by our sense of superiority and furthered by class and tribal hatreds, as well as racist, racial and religious antagonisms, have to go as well. He felt that these constitute a formidable barrier to the true development of our humanity and our interconnection in spirit. In terms of religion, he felt that the time has come to establish a comprehensive and universal understanding about the nature of reality and the nature of ourselves, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, a perspective that fosters the growth of our spiritual consciousness. He also felt that our organized religions have been, on the whole, a serious impediment to the growth of this awareness in humanity for the last 2,000 years. He also realized that everything is changing in our time, that we're living in a time of great change, and so many things are now possible that were not possible before. The third division of the plan involved what he thought of as scientific, and to be specific, he felt that a new synthesis must come into being, a conjoining of the tangible and intangible levels of reality that bring science and spirituality together. This synthesis will be brought into being, he thought, by those working in the fields of education and science, theology and psychology, anthropology and philosophy, enabling an extension of our senses and allowing us to access the hidden worlds that lie behind the veil of ignorance and matter. I like that. Yes. This was the basic outline of the plan. And I realized when Makoa was talking about it that what he was really doing was he was sketching out a foundation for the next cycle of ages, which will begin very shortly as we're coming to the end of this cycle right now. And he felt that the, de the decisions and concepts and ideas that we create in this time would be of utmost importance because what we choose to build on the foundation for the next cycle of ages will determine the lifeways and spiritual practice of humanity at large for much of the next several thousand years. And this is not a small thing. Yes, I'm reminded of the Mayan calendar, which uh, includes in 2012 and then there's 2013, it's the beginning of a new cycle. That's right. And a lot of people have referred to the, you know, the, the end of the world. You know, it's again that, you know, uh, kind of apocalyptic view. Indeed, which is different. In the book that I wrote with Sandra Ingerman a year ago, "Awakening to the Spirit World," I outlined the four ages and how I perceive the four ages to be. Um, it can be found in that book. Uh, from my perspective, the first age was the Stone Age that came to an end about 11,000 years ago. The second age was the Neolithic that came to an end about 6,000 years ago. The third age was the classical period that came to an end with the collapse of the Roman Empire. And the fourth age, the shortest, is coming to an end right now. Interestingly, with the transition from one age to the next, in each case, a new kind of religion appeared in the world. We went from the ancestral shamanism into perhaps some form of goddess worship during the Neolithic with all of these little goddess figures. Then we went into polytheism in the classical period with the Sumerians at the beginning, the Greeks and Romans at the end. 
And in our, in our age, the dominant spiritual expression has been monotheism. So, you know, it's right on track that a new kind of spirituality is taking form in our time. And this is uh, really the crux of the work that my wife and I are doing. The old black elk predicted that with the ending of this cycle of ages and the beginning of the next, that the primordial spirituality would reemerge and reestablish itself. And it would be on this foundation that the next cycle of ages would begin. The primordial spirituality is really the shaman's path. Yes. And at the epicenter of this practice is the awareness that each one of us can have the direct, transpersonal, transformative experience of the sacred realms that defines the mystic, that defines the shaman. It's really inside of us. I want to go, one of the last chapters in the book is called Exit, uh, where uh, after you, were, you had a retreat uh, with Makua and you packed up to catch your flights back to the mainland, and uh, you were heading from Waimea toward the coastal port of Kawahe. Jill uh, suddenly pointed toward the slopes of the Kohala Mountains of the north. And you were looking at the hillside blanket with what appeared to be a blue mist closely carpeting the earth. We'd never seen such a phenomena in the islands before. We were both suddenly aware of a story Makua had told us. He'd been traveling in England, and he'd been invited to stay in the abode of a woman in Glastonbury, who he told us is the current high priestess of Avalon. Uh, while sleeping in her guest room, Makua had awakened in the night aware of a powerful presence in proximity to himself. And anyway, it went on to talk about how, uh, uh, question, who are you and what is your intention? Uh, and then, I am Metatron. Uh, yes, that was really quite an extraordinary thing. Uh, the blue mist on the mountainside uh, when we saw that, we had no idea that Makoa would die that day in a yes. car accident in, yes. in Pohoa. And he told us that story about the blue mist in, coming into his room in Glastonbury, which, as many people know, is the ordinary reality equivalent of Avalon in the dream world. And when he saw the blue mist, he asked the blue mist a very typical Makoa question. He said, who are you and what is your intention? That's a very good question to ask if you're being approached by an apparition. And the words came, I am Metatron. Now, he'd never heard of Metatron before, nor had I, I might add. You know, although I was raised an Episcopalian, I, I didn't get the mystical stuff at all. Metatron is, from my perspective, the chief of all the angels, including the seraphim and the cherubim. I mean, he's sort of like the top guy. He's the guy. He's, he's, the, he's one of the highest of the high among the organizing intelligences. And this is the one who had come to talk with Makua in Glastonbury. Yes. Glaston, you know, he also, uh, I learned after his passing from friends who live up in uh, Incline Village, uh, Judith Aston, who has the Aston patterning type of bodywork. She was a very close friend of Makua's. She and her husband, Brian, told me that Makua had told them the same story and said that he realized afterwards that Metatron is actually Lono the god Lono, who is one of his ancestors. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. There's so much more to cover. I really want to thank you for being with us today. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I've been talking with Hank Wesselman. He's the author of The Bowl of Light, Ancestor Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. It's published in paperback by Sounds True Books. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, 
Shared Wisdom, Shared Wisdom, S-H-A-R-E-D, sharedwisdom.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3400. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.